Welcome back to the Legacy Through Motherhood podcast. This is Stephanie, your host. Welcome. If you are new here, uh, if you are not new here, then you know that we are pregnant with our fifth biological one. We have four littles and four little boys, and we have our anatomy scan in two weeks. So say a prayer, number one, that everything is still healthy, but number two, y'all, we're trying not to find out this time. So we want to go team green, but we have found out with all of the boys. (laughs) (laughs) The first one we wanted to find out with. The last three, we really wanted to wait, but we just suck. We literally would cave in the in the Dagon ultrasound room. So we are attempting to go team green. This is probably my last biologically. And every one of you guys that have went team green and didn't know and whatever else say that it's just the most amazing, amazing surprise. So that is our goal. That is our goal. So we will see if that actually happens. I will keep you guys updated for sure. Um, and you guys, if you listen to this podcast, you come back, you like the content, if you guys could just subscribe or leave a rating and review, that would mean so, so much to me. So, all right, let's go ahead and jump into this podcast episode today. So today I interview a guest and you guys, I loved this conversation. It is a conversation that I could have with a million different people over and over and over and over again, because the theme is just generational change. It's this overcoming something big, right? And that's what we had our overcoming series about it a little bit ago. It's like these people are overcoming something that could have broken them, right? And nobody would have nobody would have blamed them because it's hard, right? But instead, they have risen above it. And we talk about that today. So today I interviewed Shakoria Green. And she was amazing, amazing, amazing. She talks about right at the beginning of her interview, but basically her story is from foster care into social work. And she loves and has a passion for working with troubled youth, but also to develop leaders who are equipped to handle people from hard places. And so in her 20 years experience, you guys, she has worked in the nonprofit sector, servicing just really, really diverse populations, ranging kind of the full lifespan. And her work includes, I mean, serving at-risk youth, those suffering from severe mental illness, intellectual and developmental disabilities, substance abuse, right? And individuals experiencing homelessness. And that's just a few things that she covers. So in this interview, guys, we talk about specifically kind of what she does and what her nonprofit does, but we also also specifically talk about her story and how she overcame trauma that she has experienced. And then also we kind of pivot and we talk about, well, how do you develop leaders to be with and love on people well who are from hard places? And so this is such a gem of an episode, you guys. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Shakoya Green. All right. Welcome to the Legacy Through Motherhood podcast. How are you? I am great. How are you? Good, good, good. So why don't you go ahead and just jump in? Can you just tell us um, a little bit about you and a little bit about your story? Absolutely. Yes. So my name is Shaquoya Green. Um, My story is from foster care to social worker. And um, at the age of seven, I went into the foster care system with my grandmother being my foster parent until I was 18 years old. Um, Both of my parents were um, drug addicts and my mother would drop us off. My mother and father were no longer together. They were divorced. And my mother would drop me and my older sister off at my grandmother's house for days at a time, a couple of days here, three days there. And one day my grandmother just got tired of it and she called DCFS and opened a case. 
And she did that so that she would be able to provide us with the necessary supports and things that we needed as children um, and also have some financial to support financial to support to provide us with. Um, And so she was walked through the process, through the DCFS process of becoming our legal guardian. She became our legal guardian. She um, never wanted to adopt us. My mom went into a rehab, rehab program when I was a senior in high school, and my grandmother did not want to adopt us because it was always her hope and her prayer that my mother would go into a program and get us back. And so she didn't want to adopt us and take that right um, or that privilege away from her. So she did keep us in the foster care system through KinGap. Um, and so we were guardians until I graduated from high school and until my sister graduated from high school. But then I had two younger brothers and my mother did go into a rehab and she did get herself clean and she got my younger brothers back. Um, during that process, I had two two social workers that I can remember. One at the beginning of my case, um, who was an African-American male who was very compassionate and very empathetic. Um, And he was just so calm and collective and walked my grandmother through. I remember so vividly him walking her through the process of what it meant when she made the referral and what would happen. And then I also remember we did not want social workers at our schools. You know, we didn't, who, who wants that? Who wants people to know that you don't live with your parents? Yep. And so my grandmother had a conversation with him. And so he had to go to the schools to talk to the teachers, to get records. And so he did that, but then he would come back. He would come back and see us at home after school hours. And so I just always remember him being so caring, so compassionate, and so empathetic. And then my last social worker who um, helped me with the college process, Um, I was the first individual in my family to go to a university to obtain my bachelor's degree degree, as well as my master's degree. And so she um, provided me with some scholarship information. DCFS paid for books for me throughout um, until I was 21 years old. And I graduated in four years, so my whole four years. excuse me, also pay for summer school classes. And I just remember the care and support that they were able to provide to me. And I always thought like this lady, when she first came to our house, she was this tall Caucasian woman. I'm an African-American little girl born and raised in Compton. I'm like, what, what, what is she about to right. do? She does not even <laughs> understand me, you know? And I was totally wrong totally wrong. She was so helpful, so resourceful. And um, that is how I decided to go into the field of social work, how I knew I wanted to go into a a helping profession. Um, Started at 14 when I was a peer advocate for in high school. I um, did the drug alcohol tobacco education program where I went to middle schools and taught them about drug alcohol tobacco education. And from there, it's history. Honestly, I've been in the field of social work, helping people ever since. And that, that that's my story. Um, I, I love it. Do you, do you happen to know, um, I can't remember, I knew it at one point, just even the stat of the amount of foster kids that actually end up going to college, let alone graduating college, let alone getting their master's. Absolutely. And so it's funny that you talk about this, about these statistics. And so I was actually just reading on a website today, probably a few hours ago, where it said 3% of um, 
transition age foster youth go to college. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, wow, that's low. It is low. And, you know, and, and and it's just that support system. I feel like it's just that lack of even guidance. I mean, I remember when our girls, um, our girls, as in the girls that we mentor just in general, you know, started going to a college, like there was so much application. There's so much stuff. Just you know, Like you just don't even know what you don't know. And I feel like you really, really have to have people when you aren't necessarily in this um, support system or this family unit, I, obviously you you were with your grandma, but not you know ideally with your mother. And it's just like you have to have this a support system to come alongside you and really just guide you in those steps so that you can even get to that next level. You know, so is this kind of where your heart kind of stemmed for your nonprofit and just going into social work? Do you feel like those social workers that were in your life just made a huge impact? That's kind of what you wanted to give back, so to speak. Yes. Um, So my grandmother, she was a helper. She gave back. She fed the homeless. She kept us involved in church. So seeing her do that, um, as well as seeing as far as a professional career, seeing the social workers that I had and the way they poured into me and ensured that I had the things that I needed, ensured that my grandmother was in the know. That is definitely um, how I went into the the work of um, a social worker, how I went into social work, as well as um, I've been in social work for 20 years. Um straight out of college, first job, case manager. So I've been in the social work realm for 20 years. And wow, then- I don't feel like um, that's common either. Isn't social work, isn't that a pretty high turnover? I feel like just ha- the conversations we've had with our social workers, I feel like we didn't make it throughout the two years without a lot of turnover. So being in there 20 years, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is a huge turnover. And I think for me in my 20 years, I have had the opportunity to- um, to do uh, to work with people from birth to death, right? Over these twenty years, the last twelve years, mm-hmm. I have spent it in leadership. So right now, I, while I did launch, um, a friend of mine and I, we launched a nonprofit about six years ago, and it is called B two B Support Services. Blessed to be a blessing. And it's funny because we decided to launch the nonprofit and I'm like, well, what do we want to call it? What do we want to call it? And I've always said that I am blessed to be a blessing. I've had so many different people to pour into me and be a blessing to me. Now it's my turn to give back. And so my friend was like, she was like, well, why not call it blessed to be a blessing? And I was like, oh, okay, why not? (laughs) (laughs) You know? And so that's what we did. So we launched about six years ago and we provide scholarships to youth in South Los Angeles, first year um, college students. We also do a, a giveaway during Christmas. We provide a giveaway. We identify a group of individuals um, or an organization in need. And we do what's called a party with the cause called cookie, Cookies and Cocktails. This year, of course, due to COVID, it was um, a drive-by event. And we collected gift cards to donate to um, actually to the rehabilitation program, Shields for Families, that my mom went into when she um, went into rehab when I I was in high school. So we donated to that nonprofit this year. Also, we, um, we, we do a school supply giveaway as well. And so that has, that is, that is my passion, helping others, helping people get to the next phase of our, of their lives. And so I've also worked in a nonprofit and my full-time job is with a nonprofit as well. 
during the pandemic, I launched um, SDG Coaching, Consulting, and Training. And those are my initials, Shaquoya Denisha Green, but it's also Sincerely Destined for Greatness. And so my goal with that is to empower women um, and leaders to strive and to thrive, strive to thrive for more, to trust the process and um, to work within their passion and be happy doing it. I love that. And do you feel like – so did you – within social work, did you work with foster care at all specifically or was it another realm? I did. I, okay. You know, that was one of the realms that I was afraid to go into, honestly. Yes, that's what um, I was going to – yeah, I thought that I would be biased. I thought that I couldn't handle it. And so I would have to say, so I graduated in 2000. And so I had to have gone to Riverside County CPS somewhere around 2007. Um, and so I did. I did work in uh, with DCFS or CPS in foster care. And I remember you know, like, oh my God, do I want to do this? What is this going to feel like? And it was not bad at all. I had to do what was right for kids to ensure that they were safe. And so that was my driving force, honestly, putting the children first. And so at, at that point, it was for me, it was like, okay, I have to do my best. I have to make wise decision, wise informed decision that fall within the realm of the law and to ensure the safety of these children. And so I went there and I did that for probably a year. And then I relocated back to Los Angeles and I worked with families that were in the foster care system. Gotcha. Yeah. I, um, one of the girls that I was talking about that I had, we had kind of mentored, uh, that were, that was in foster care and, and she was adopted and whatever else, but she just had a, has a heart for children. She's amazing. Um, she has an amazing testimony, um, you know, had a pretty rough, rough go um, with her story just in general. And she kind of like tiptoed around getting into social work and stuff. But she's like, I don't know, you know, and we had so many conversations about it because, you know, on one hand, it's like, man, you have a platform and an experience and a perspective that you know, not every caseworker does. Like you get foster care because you've been in it as a child and as a teen, you know, in the whole nine. Um, but at the same time, she was nervous because there's so many triggers. You know, mm -hmm. there's so many things where it's like my heart just broke <laughs> over and over and over again, you know, as I grew up. And the triggers she didn't even know were triggers. You know, there's certain things which um I'm not really going to get into just because people that do listen, some of them know who they are and I don't want to like tell their story. But um, you know what I mean? Like she was a little nervous to be like, man, <laughs> to like re-see that. I don't know if I could handle it or just in general. So, so we're still kind of like tiptoeing around that. But I think that if you can kind of navigate that, like you said, with these children's and, uh, you know, making the best decision for the children within the law, that's kind of your North Star, you know? So did you find that to be like a really hard kind of road to walk as far as just your past? Or do you feel like, I don't know, do you feel like it was simpler because you had been through it and you kind of knew what to expect? So uh, before I started the role, I thought it was going to be very hard, honestly. However, once I started, it was not. It was, it was one of those things of, um, I know what my past was. I've dealt with my past. I've dealt with the trauma um, of not having my parents. Um, 
And at that point, and at that point in my life, I also understood what addiction was, you know? And I tell, I, I actually wrote a blog called Forgiveness is for the Forgiver. Yes, right? I read it. And so it's for beautiful. me, I had to for, forgive my parents so that I could move forward in life, so that I could even to this now I'm getting married um, in May so that I could have a new relationship. I had to forgive my father. And so with that, that also made it okay for me to do my job, right? I was able to do my job without any regrets, knowing that I was doing this, I was doing this work at CPS for the children so that they were able to grow up in safe, loving homes. Yep. And can we dive into this? And you don't have to necessarily obviously go into specifics or anything, but, you know, dealing with trauma. So there is, we talk about this a lot. We talk about the epigenetics of trauma. We talk about even people who were, you know, we had a um, a guest on here who her daughter is the great granddaughters of um, people who were in Auschwitz, like her, her grand great grandparents were in Auschwitz and just this generational trauma that can, that can be passed down from generations to generation. And like you were just talking about with addiction, like you have an addiction gene that gets turned on. And science has said that like, it takes four generations for that to be turned off. And uh, my, my father was also um, an addict and, you know, it, knowing that you have that gene turned on, all it means, I talk a ton about this in the podcast, but all that means is you're predisposed. You're not predestined to be an addict, right? Um, But you do need to be more aware. You're more vulnerable to it. Coping skills is huge, a support system, you know, whatever it might be. And so I would love it if you could speak a little bit about just dealing with trauma because obviously with with um, not having your mother and all this kind of stuff, there's a lot of that. So in what ways could you maybe just share how how are you able to deal with that trauma? And for anyone else who is listening who has dealt with maybe obviously not your exact same situation, but something like it, like what are some tools you can do to deal with that? Um, one, I for me, I would have to say I started journaling at a young age. Like all throughout middle school, all throughout high school, all throughout college, I journaled. And so I truly believe that um, being able to write down my stories and go back and read them helped me a lot to deal with my trauma. I also believe that therapy helps. Therapy is huge. Um, Therapy is a part of the healing process. You also have to be at a place in your life where you have to be able to acknowledge that this was traumatic and now I need to heal. Until you can acknowledge that it was a traumatic incident or a traumatic episode or a traumatic 10, 12 years, until then you won't be able to heal because you haven't acknowledged that there was even a problem, right? And so acknowledgement is the first step to um, dealing with your trauma. The other part of it is um, having a good support system. Having a good support system that you can go to that understands, right? That understands that you dealt with these life issues um, and are are there when you need them. Having a good resource uh, bank to go to, right? Go, Go to some groups. I'm a firm believer in getting some help, journaling, and also being willing to sit back and do the work yourself. And when I say do the work yourself, sometimes it takes you doing some research on substance abuse, right? Understanding how you are predisposed. 
Yes, genetics and uh, research says I'm predisposed. However, I firmly believe that I'm predisposed. I'm predisposed to destiny, and not to substance use. I, for me, I've seen what substance abuse did to my family, right? And so for me, it's like, huh? Yeah, no, that's not for me. Never have I even smoked marijuana. No drugs whatsoever. I've seen the effects and the impact that drugs have on life. And even just growing up in the city um, of Compton and in L.A., you know, you look at the homeless people on the streets, you look at the individuals, you see the substance abuse um, heavy, you know. And so for me, it's like I'm not going to be a statistic. I have so much more going for me. I am predestined for greatness. And so how do I get there? And using drugs is not an option. Sure. And I... I feel like I go so many ways with this right now, but I just want to point out a couple things. Number one, I love that you said, um, you said it a, a little bit ago, just that you started to understand addiction. And that was, I don't know if you said this was part of your healing process, but just in general, because I remember when I was a kid, there were so I grew up really fast <laughs> with my dad mm-hmm. and everything, you know, and, um, and then I became an adult and I understood addiction. And so then I understood that it wasn't like, oh, he didn't love me or oh, he didn't, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not all these things that as a child and with our child brain that we kind of, you know, we create meaning to something that's really not there. And you learn how strong of a stronghold, you know, addiction can have on someone. And so I feel like, like you were saying, as you start to understand this disease, it doesn't necessarily like take away from you know, what they did or how, what you experienced or how things probably, you know, things should have been differently, but, or been different, but it just wasn't, but it does give you this, not excuse, but just this reason of like, oh, okay. <laughs> As you become an adult and can kind of look at it with an adult lens, that really helps. And then I also think that it's really good, you know, just even probably a lot through therapy in which I did and all kinds of stuff, you learn that their intention was probably never to hurt you. Do you know what I mean? Like their intention, they loved you. You can't tell me that my father didn't or your mother didn't. Like it's just, but that doesn't mean that there was an impact that happened, lifelong impact. And, um, and I loved, I read your blog that said that was all about, um, what was it called? Oh, disruption is required or a t-shirt. Some, it was, it was in a blog. (laughs) I was reading all of your blogs earlier. Um, but I love this because you're like, something's got to freaking give. You can't just go with the status quo, you know, like something has to disrupt so that you can change course. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And so, you know, people, when people hear the word disruption, they think of it in a negative way, right? However, in order for you to lose weight, to uh, pass a test, to decide I am going to go to college, right? You have to disrupt your normal pattern, your normal everyday pattern. So I am on a healthy kick to eating right, which means I love sweets. I love candy. I love cakes. Well, I can't eat that. That's part of my normal eating pattern. And so I have to disrupt that normal pattern to get to the next phase of my life, which means that disruption is required at all phases of your life in a positive way. Right. And I feel like part of what you were saying earlier, okay, so I always, I always, this is, this is the question I always have. Okay. This is what really intrigues me about children of addicts because you have, let's just say you have two siblings. This is completely figuratively. You have two siblings, right? And their Mm -hmm. father, mother is an addict and you have one 
that is like you and I really of like, I'm not doing it. This is not for me. Like I saw what it did to my family and I refuse to go down that road. And then you have the other sibling that's like, well, my dad was an addict. So that's all I know. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they become an addict and it, and the generational, you know, addiction just continues with that line. And so it's always so interesting to me, like why can you have within the same sibling group, one person that's like, I will literally never even touch marijuana, like you said, but the other person will just dive into addiction because, and it's, and they both blame their parents. You know what I mean? And so I think that another thing you talk about a ton is ownership. Like again, we, there people impact our life. That is it. But we have to take extreme ownership of where we are because that puts us back in the driver's seat. Absolutely. And I think in order for us to take ownership, we have to have what I talk about as a mindset shift. We have to be willing to, in order to take ownership, that means you're stopping the blame. You're not placing the blame on the other person, which means it's requiring you to think differently and for your mindset to shift and for you to take ownership of whatever that is, whether it's going to work, losing weight, not being an addict. It's time for you to take ownership, which shifts that mindset. And so in order to do that, you have to have what I call a mindset shift. And so what does that look like practically? do you think? Or have you seen played out in your either in your own life or people that you've mentored or the leaders that you kind of like talk to and teach? It, it looks like a couple of different things. So for me, I think for me, I went through a phase of saying, you know, oh, my mom could do this and she could get off drugs until I really understood, again, like I shared the addiction piece, right? right. And so right. it required me to really pay attention and really learn what it what the addiction process means. And with that, I had to shift my mindset from blaming my mom to saying, oh, this is really an issue. This is something that's deeply embedded in her. And right now she's so far gone, she's not ready to have that mindset shift, right? Um, so that she can go into a rehab. It's all about really understanding the process. And when I say the process, understanding whatever the issue is, And then saying, okay, I can either go left or I can go right. And what does left give me and what does right give me? Left could have left me to be continued to, I could have continued to be unhealed and blaming. However, right, really doing the research, understanding addiction and saying, okay, let me take ownership of this. This is what happened. I am not my past. I am my future. And let's get there. I am destined for greatness. I just feel like, There's so much when you are dealing with trauma. It's so complicated and so interconnected with relationships and feelings and our mind and our brain and all of these things. I feel like some people just think it's such a simple answer. And it is so, so hard to work with people who are experiencing some kind of hardship or having gone through trauma. It it definitely is. And, um, you know, like you said, people think that it's just so easy. It's not. It's a process. And that's why I say trust the process. Um, And at the end of one of my blogs, I wrote life is a journey. It it keeps going. And you have to be willing to trust the process while you're on that journey to the next you. I love that. And so can you just talk a little bit about, so you with your like mentoring leaders and so are are the leaders that you are mentoring, are they working with people who are from hard places, like whether it be just troubled youth or whatever else? 
Yes, they are. They are all in the social uh, social services realm. So it could be individuals working with at-risk youth. It could be individuals working with individuals experiencing homelessness, individuals in foster care, individuals who are trying to work with transition age foster youth, opening up residential facilities. It, it is all individuals that are in the helping profession. Yes. Okay. I love that. So we talked a little bit about personally, you know, how, what are some steps to heal your own trauma, but what are some things that you teach these adults to kind of, um, I don't even know what the word is. What do you teach them to be able to handle, you know, loving on and working with these kids or, you know, young adults from really hard places? Are there certain things that you're like, do this? This is, you know, what kind of training do you give them? So it honestly, the training piece, it all depends. The mentorship and the coaching is where um, it's more individualized based on where the individual is. I also meet them where they're at, right? And so one of the things that I tell everybody is one, You have to give yourself some grace and you have to give the individuals you're working with some grace. And so I broke the word grace down. Um, And so the G in grace is growth. Be willing to grow and also encourage others to grow, to be resilient and teach resiliency, to be ambitious and to also teach, if you're working with youth, teach them, teach them to be ambitious, to have compassion for yourself and others, and then to be empowered and be empowering. And so that is one of the things that I ask leaders to take with them, the word grace. I love that. And I feel like it's so important to just to you know, when you're working with people, first of all, we all come from hard places. You know what I mean? We're mm-hmm. all we're all difficult people. But um, I think that there's just a special approach and heart full of exactly what you said, Grace, when you are when you are working with people who come from hard places where I feel like we are kind of the same vibe, me and you <laughs> like we just love to serve so, so mm-hmm. much. And I just feel like God has just put these people in our life who just, you know, need mentored and whatever, because I needed freaking mentored. (laughs) Like I needed those people in my life. You know what I mean? And so that's one of the biggest reasons we got into different stuff with youth in our church. It's like, listen, I needed that when I was growing up. So now we are just kind of passing that along. So I absolutely love everything that you're doing. I love that you have taken your journey, you know, throughout your entire life and you have turned it around to be this nonprofit and you are just blessing others, <laughs> being a blessing, blessing others. So Shakoya, where can people find you, reach out to you, just see some of your um, your words, your blog? I, I literally read every single one today. <laughs> they were all oh, beautiful. Wow, thank you. Um, so where can people find you at? So I am on Instagram at SDG underscore coaching. And then I am on Facebook at SDG Coaching and then my website, sdgcoaching.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for just coming on and sharing your story and what you do. And I think it's always really impactful when we can have people on who can speak directly in how to heal trauma ourselves and then also how do we do do that when we're working with other people who have experienced trauma. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. I greatly appreciate you having me and giving me the ability to pour into others. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, you guys. I hope you love that episode. I love that interview. I could literally sit down with probably every single person 
<laughs> maybe not literally, in the world and have these conversations of, you know, experience that they had, how they overcame it, how they dealt with their trauma, because it's all different, you know, and there is no comparison from Shakoya's, you know, childhood to my childhood, to your childhood, to, you know, your sister's, your neighbor's childhood, like, it all is what it is. And so it's just what we do with it, right? And so be it major, be it minor, you know, trauma or whatever, we all have our work to do. And we talk about that so much in this podcast. We all have our work to do. And then the whole point is that we're working on ourselves, right? Like so many people will think, or we I've just had these conversations, will think that this podcast, Legacy Through Motherhood, is about teaching our children to be better. And the truth is, is that yes, absolutely, that is the heart behind this, but more so it's about us. It is about the mothers who are still living and breathing and the work that we have to do, be it financially, emotionally, you know, and within relationships, whatever it might be. Like you guys, we are still living and breathing. So yes, we want to love our children better. We want to teach our children better, but we cannot ignore the work that we have to do. Like she was saying, she had to forgive her father so that she could move on with her husband, right? Like there is so much work that we still have to do, moms. And when we do it, when we do it for ourselves, (laughs) we are not being selfish because what happens when we take that time to truly heal, to truly learn, to truly understand what has um, kept us back, Then once we can move forward, you guys, that is just going to overflow from us. And our children are going to get the effects of that. Our children are going to get that overflow. They are going to see a mother who, you know, is standing in her power like Shakoya is. And she is loving on others and she is teaching leaders and she is equipping and empowering through this grace-filled message to others. Now, she is able to do that because she has worked on herself. And I am sure, because I think I could speak for literally everyone in this world, we still have work to do, right? And for for me, like I've done a lot of work. And so I can turn around and I can teach and I can love on people who are from similar situations that are just a little bit behind me because they're younger or whatever it might be, right? And so whatever your platform is and your testimony and your story We know, we just talked about this, like we know it is not as simple as just, you know, changing one day and getting up and saying, you know what, okay, I'm done, I'm over it. No, it takes work and it's hard. And when we have so much pulling on us, like our kids need breakfast and this one needs a butt wiped and this one needs her lunch packed and I got to go to work and all these different things. It's so easy to just shove that down, that piece of us that is still a broken seven-year-old because of whatever trauma happened. And it doesn't matter big or small. You know, you don't have to have Shakoya's story. You don't have to have my story. You don't have to have your neighbor. Your story is enough. And whatever you feel from that is enough. Because like I said in this episode, and like we talked about, there's a difference. Nobody intended, my, my dad did not intend, her parents did not intend to hurt anyone. But it doesn't mean there is an impact. And so if you were impacted, we have to work through that. We have to work through that. And that, that is how it is going to overflow 
and our children are going to see a different side of us. So I just encourage you today, I'm sure Shakoya encourages you today to find that community, find that support group, learn what you need to learn about whatever it might be. And I will be right here on this podcast, helping you find your grit while completely covering you in grace.